from KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. In 1994, Fernando Lopez and Maria Monterubio opened the doors of a humble restaurant on 8th Street in L.A.'s Koreatown. It was called Galagetza. There were four items on the menu, including tamales de mole that cost all of five bucks. 20 years later, Galagetza is an L.A. institution, a temple to Oaxacan cuisine and a James Beard America's classic. Fernando and Maria have returned to their native Oaxaca, leaving the next generation to run the show. Galagetza, as a word, a direct translation would be reciprocity, communing, sharing, with one another. It's that sort of spirit. That's Bricia Lopez, head of operations for Gelaguetza. She's been entrusted with the family legacy, along with her siblings, Paulina, Fernando Jr., and Elizabeth. Not only the restaurant name and recipes, but the family story, too. Bricia has written that story down in a new cookbook, simply titled Oaxaca. It's co-authored by a familiar name, L.A. Taco editor Javier Cabral. Welcome, both of you. Hi, that's so beautiful. I kind of wanted to cry right now when you were reading that. <laughs> Classic, Evan. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like, I don't know, you know, we've been interviewing you over the years, Patricia, for so long. I mean, so many years, so many stories. Mm-hmm. And to have, like, this book, it must be an incredible moment for you. It is. I'm just happy. I really am. 25 years this year, we turned Galagetza, 25 years. Uh, my parents flew from Oaxaca. They were here for a party that we had for the book. And just to see them, you know, carefree, looking at their children, really taking over the family business and feeling proud of us. It's hard to describe the feeling aside from just immense happiness. What's so interesting to me about this handover Mm -hmm. is I know that on some level, as many children who grow up in the restaurant business feel, you had no desire to take over the restaurant. And your parents' strategy, your father's strategy of just leaving, telling you and your siblings, we've made the decision to go. Mm -hmm. So um, keep the restaurant or don't keep the restaurant. It's up to you. What did that do to your brain? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, it's twofold. And yes, growing up in the restaurant, I remember having this love-hate relationship because I felt for a very long time that it stole my youth, right? (laughs) And I don't mean my youth, like my 20s youth. I mean my childhood. I'm not a very athletic person. I never learned any sports. I was never in any extracurricular activities. And people ask me, that's so weird. Why? I'm like, because my parents were too busy trying to survive, man. We needed to work at the restaurant. Like we didn't have time to even get sick. Growing up like that, you just grew up hating that part of your life. The thing that took your parents away from you and that determined what you were doing every day while your friends were out. At the mall. So. (laughs) I'm so glad you weren't at the mall. (laughs) So then, you know, when this happened, you know, my dad had also lost six restaurants. He personally had to file bankruptcy with my mom. The business was, I think, probably two months away from doing the same. The recession was brutal for the restaurant business here. We were were pretty bad. So it was the combination of number one, oh my gosh, am I going to have to go and look for a job? And then this idea that I have to work for someone every single day and coming every single day and in Spanish, they say that rendirle cuentas a alguien, like you 
you you have to tell every chicken with someone every single day, right? Like that was weird to me. And then second, I thought, oh my God, it's my dad's everything. Like this is 20 years of his life at this moment, 19, 18 years. It's going to be over just because I don't want to work hard. You know, it was like this weird moment that I thought, is this going to disappear? Like my dad's legacy, all his work, all his sweat and tears, all those nights that I didn't see him, the idea of him leaving Oaxaca, risking his life, all those things, just I didn't have an excuse not to do it. And we just decided to figure it out, man. <laughs> Aren't you glad you did? Yes, I'm very, very. I mean, it's it's been amazing. I understand now when my dad would tell me before, you think you're working right now? Like what you're doing right now, you're not working when we you know he was here. And I always get so mad. I used to say to myself, are you kidding me? I'm here all the time. What else do you want from me? But when he left us, I understood, oh, no, really, I wasn't really working. I was just, I was checked out. It's not until you're running a business that you understand what true work looks like. Are you all engaged in the business? Mm, three. Three out of the four. And how is it divided up? The responsibilities. Is it divided up? It is. It's, it's you know, we're all equal partners, the three of us. Everybody knows what everyone else's strengths is, and we all know what our weaknesses are. So we don't focus on our weaknesses. We focus on what are we the best at? And let's figure out how we can best use you. Because aside from the restaurant, we also have other businesses that we run together. It's really a beautiful thing to be able to have full trust with your partners. And that really is what we are. We're we're siblings, but we're life partners. I know we've talked about this over the years so much, but explain this notion of Gelagetza and what it means in Oaxacan culture. It's such a beautiful thing. It's a huge word, and the meaning of it is just as big. It's this way of life in Oaxaca to where people in town still have, we have a picture of actually my, my grandma's Gelagetza book, where a neighbor says, I I came to your party and I brought you two chickens and a sack of beans. So then when someone else's kid gets married or something happens or passes away, it's this way of sharing within the town and really communing with the town and, and sharing one, with one another and creating community, really. It's at the center of creating community. But what's extraordinary to me about it is it's so not messy that no. way. It's like you keep track of what other people have done for you and what you have done for them, and it can skip generations. Mm-hmm. Like, you can drag that reciprocity along for, like, 10 years. Oh, even more. I mean, my mom will still get people coming and saying, oh, well, your grandma, you know, the other day someone showed up with something for my mom. It's like, oh, I remember your mom gave me this, so, like, now I'm returning it. It really is a generational, beautiful thing. So, Bricia, you entrusted Javier with telling your family story. And a lot of recipe testing. Mm-hmm. We've known each other for over a decade now. Do you know what Jonathan introduced us? Of course he did. I remember he said, you need to meet this guy. So it was at a Taste of the Nation festival. And how old was he, 12? Uh, he, was, he wasn't <laughs> of one, age. Evan. Got me. He wasn't of <laughs> age, him. for sure. So Javier, this was your first book. Correct. What was the process like for you? It was, um, you know, it just hit me this morning, actually. You know, it is the culmination of, of, of honing the craft of writing and your my voice into this book, into this physical book. You know, I feel lucky to have met the Lopez family and for them to pretty much adopt me into their family. That must have made it easier in a way because it's not only your voice, but you kind of have to channel their voice. 
Yeah, as told to. Bricia only gave me one prompt um, when we signed the contract. She looked at me and she was like, just make me sound like Beyonce. <laughs> I read this Vogue article that I stole to by Beyonce that someone wrote and I was like, I want to sound like this. <laughs> so I studied that Vogue article <laughs> deeply and, I, and, I, and, I, you know, and I, I saw some parallels, you know, but what kind of what hit it home for me was besides that joke, she was like, you know, this, this book is, yes, it's overdue, but I also want my son to be able to cook out of it uh, when he's older. And that responsibility, I was like, okay, I got to make sure that, that the recipes are accurate as hell and make sure that everything is as easy to, to read and do, even if you have no kind of background in, me- in Mexican cooking. So I want to talk a little bit about the recipes, and I want to skip over mole for a minute. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Just because, I mean, when you say the word Oaxaca, the next word is mole. Mm-hmm. But there's more. I mean, to me, mole is almost like a metaphor. Mm-hmm. For complexity, deliciousness, aromatics, flavor. But not everybody survives on mole 24-7, three meals a day, right? Mm -hmm. So just something to the book, I looked at some things that for me, I would want to make. So I love little bites. I love masa. So I keyed in on the garnachas. Mm. East Manias. A garnacha is Manias from the Isthmus region of of Oaxaca. It's uh, in this stretch of land where the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean are 200 miles of each other? I think so. Because of that, it's a much more tropical uh, region. There's a lush bounty of, of, of ingredients and vegetables and fruits. So that dish is a really amazing anantojito, but it's with a really tasty slaw. And the technique for that was to mulch the beef a little bit. So it's a little bit, a little like minced beef, but that tropical slaw, you taste it, you're like, oh, okay, so this is comida oaxaqueña, so this is Oaxacan food. I didn't, I didn't know this. And that's what, as you mentioned earlier, the book, what we tried to establish is like, yes, moles are awesome, and I will always love moles, but there are so many other recipes that are really easy to make, that, that the bases are either beans or vegetables or a chicken or pork, you know, and you build from there. I tend to gravitate to pretty simple things to eat. So then I end up making pretty simple things. So I love entomatadas. Mm-hmm. Entomatadas, you know, Bricia had a, a, an epiphany with that dish. I think while we were testing it or while we were uh, writing it, she was like, man, this is like, this is like the marinara of, of Mexican food. This is like the, the spaghetti marinara. It's just simple. Here's the tortillas instead of pasta. Here's our, a, a tomato sauce that has garlic in it. Um, it's, we call it a, a, like the Oaxacan mother sauce because you use that, that same tomato sauce for so many other applications. And that's what that dish is. You know, it is crispy pieces of, um, so pan-fried, lightly pan-fried tortillas that uh, get soft and a little crispy. And then you dip them in a really savory tomato salsa, uh, but one that's cooked. And then you sprinkle, you know, whatever fixings you got, onion, parsley, cilantro, a little bit of cheese, and you just eat it like you would like a like a bowl of uh, of pasta. And it's and it's so comforting and it's so filling. And that's actually when you want in Oaxaca, that's what you see people eating every day. And we talk about this in the book is that the beautiful thing about, about comida oaxaqueña is that it's it's a it's a very fluid cuisine because you can have the entomatadas for breakfast, lunch and dinner. For breakfast you'll have it with some fried eggs. For lunch you'll have it with a piece of uh, grilled tasajo. Um, you know, a, a thin steak or a, a grilled pork, and then for for dinner you can have it with a with a with a handful of quesillo, which is an unpasteurized Oaxacan string cheese. So, and it's equally as satisfying in any part of the day. And a lot of our recipes are that way. You can have it for breakfast, for lunch, for, or for mm-hmm. dinner. There, there's a fluidity to Oaxacan food. Dave the Dead is coming up. Mm-hmm. 
I know that there is this dish of squash, which makes sense given that it's this time of year. But it's squash that's um, stewed uh, in piloncillo, so it's mm-hmm. sweet. Could you describe it? Yeah, this is really put in the altar, and it's the sweetness that brings people people who have passed on to come and have something sweet. Uh, during Day of the Dead, squash is one of the things that's abundant in Oaxaca. In, in Oaxaca, this is considered a candy. And it's really placed on the altar just to signify that sweetness, odor, and taste for those who have passed to come and eat. So it's a candied uh, winter squash mm-hmm. that has all the warm spices in it. Exactly. It's almost like the original pumpkin spice. <laughs> Yes, exactly. See, we're making all sorts of correlations here. I would say that I would recommend someone to put a riff on that, and I would make a really great pie for the holidays, too, for Thanksgiving. So now we're going to go into a mole, but not a mole negro, not a mole rojo. I really love mole amarillo. Mm. So it's the yellow mole with white beans, nopales, and dried shrimp. I just thought that was a bowl of comfort. That one is one of these dishes that my mom would make during lunch all the time. That one, the other one that we have there is lisa and frijol blanco, which is also just as delicious. And it's another dish that I'm a huge fan of that I'm going to encourage people to cook. But if you like mole amarillo, I'm going to tell you what you should definitely try to make. Believe me, it is delicious. Our empanadas de San Antonino. They're made with mole amarillo, but then a mole amarillo actually gets cooked inside the empanada. You use a little bit of pork fat with it. So all the fat kind of oozes out of the masa when you're cooking it. And the mole just sort of thickens inside of it. And it's just the most beautiful. So the empanada, I have to like break this down. So the empanada is made from a regular empanada dough or it's a masa? Got it. I always make this mistake. So empanadas in Oaxaca, they're actually corn. It's just almost like making a tortilla. You cook the first side, then you turn it around and then you fill it with chicken and this mole amarillo sauce that hasn't been properly cooked because then it gets cooked inside the empanada and it gets close. So it's almost like a quesadilla with fresh masa, but... Again, the ooziness of the mole and the thickening of the mole inside the empanada, it's really what brings those flavors. And it's one of my favorite things. So judging from Instagram, Oaxaca seems to be becoming some kind of an it destination Mm -hmm. for people who love food, craft, like textiles, color. Can you talk about what it's like to introduce people to Oaxaca for the first time? Oh, it's, it's fun. Because I grew up in Oaxaca. When you grow up with something, you don't really see the beauty as when you leave and come back, right? And I would just come back. I remember when I first took my friends and I thought, man, are they going to like this place? Because it's just, I mean, it's pretty simple. But then I realized that outside of Oaxaca, there isn't a place like that. So taking them in an excursion through the places that I grew up, eating the food that I grew up eating, and people getting just blown away at the deliciousness that comes from simplicity, it's its almost like the essence of culture. humanity and culture. Yes, and I think that really is when people go, it's, it's nothing other than authenticity. Well, I want to thank the two of you. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> I'm so pleased that you and Javier found each other and created this book together. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Evan. And I want to give a shout out to the recipe for pozole mixteco because that is a really special recipe. It's pozole and mole in one. Thank you, too, so much. Of course. 
I've been talking with Bricia Lopez of Gelaguetza and Javier Cabral, editor of LA Taco. Their book is Oaxaca, Home Cooking from the Heart of Mexico. Visit the Good Food website for a Dia de los Muertos recipe. After a short break, a closer look at the culinary side of Dia de los Muertos. And we're looking at the endangered status of a fruit that many of us take for granted and the race to save it. Don't go anywhere. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Many of you know Carlos Salgado as the chef owner of Taco Maria in Orange County and the winner of our tortilla tournament this year. In 2014, I spoke with him about the culinary side of Dia de los Muertos, including sugar skulls, pan de muertos, and candied pumpkin. I wanted to play it for you again. Thank you so much for bringing me this beautiful bread. Why don't we start with you describing it? Um, Sure. Uh, I've made for you a traditional pan de muertos. It's a fairly typical uh, Mexican sweet pastry, you know, to signify the spirits of the dead, uh, their favorite foods. In true traditional form, it's made uh, with uh, unrefined sugar, orange zest. In place of the anise, I have a little bit of chamomile, which I like, uh, with uh, orange water. And then, um, of course, um, something had to die to make it, so uh, we used a little bit of lard rather than just butter. And uh, Is that true? Something had to die to make it? No, I don't know, but it seemed appropriate. <laughs> I love that. And then, and then the top is decorated with sort of a very metaphorical interpretation of bones. Indeed. Would this be eaten by people, or is it placed on an altar as an offering? Well, both. Uh, of course, um, you know, any, uh, any Mexican celebration is going to involve some kind of sweet bread, eating far too much of it. You know, sugar-crusted uh, doughs of every shape and color. And so it is something that um, would take the place of maybe the typical pan dulce with coffee in the morning, these skeletal buns. <laughs> skeletal buns. It smells so good, I have to tell you. Um, so what are the foods that you grew up with? Uh, well, uh, this time of year, starting pretty much at the beginning of October and going through January, it'll be uh, uh, one big uh, tamale party. So uh, we've already, you know, we've already started our family's production and we'll probably, and not just because we're a restaurant family, but because we are a big Mexican family, we'll probably produce something on the order of thousands of tamales over the over the course of the next few months. That is incredible. And And does that happen with like a squadron of family members gathering at specific times? You know, in this modern day, it, it's not quite the uh, sort of iconic image of the family gathered in the in the kitchen uh, for a long session of, of making tamales. More so, it's uh, individual families making different types and bringing them together when they, when they gather for a celebration. So what are you making? And are you serving any of them at Taco Maria? We are getting ready to start our tamal season. So we're going to bring back a favorite from last year, which was our, uh, our pumpkin tamal, kabocha uh, squash or, or sugar pumpkin, which is really good. We basically make it with as much pumpkin and as little masa as we can, uh, and that's very nice. Uh, we serve it with um, pipian verde. Pumpkin seeds and green chilies and some warm spices. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite nice. I'm looking forward to it. Do you make candied squash? Yes. Um, I just, um, I, I've been working for months to perfect this recipe because I, I didn't want to let another fall season pass and not make a passable traditional, you know, Mexican candied squash, um, or in this case, a sweet potato, which is 
the camote or sweet potato is a typical dessert of my family. It's almost always cooking in the kitchen in a pot of brown sugar to be had with a glass of milk after dinner. But I've always been fixated on the uh, on the more classical um, crystallized squash candies and sweet potato candies. In that process, um, a, a piece of squash or another starchy vegetable like a sweet potato is soaked for a long period in uh, mineral lime to sort of nixtamalize it in a process similar to making hominy or, or uh, corn for tortillas. It's interesting because what it does with the corn is that it sort of softens it to allow it to release itself from the husk, from the little outer part of the corn. But with the squash, which is such a soft vegetable, what does it do? Well, it seems to uh, sort of create a shell that better takes up the sugar and forms like a nice um, brittle sort of sugary exterior that yields to a soft, sweet, you know, delicious paste inside. So it allows you to have enough firmness on the exterior to go through a candying process. Yes. You know, they look incredible when you see them when you're traveling in Mexico and, and you see big hunks of them. Describe what they taste like. First of all, there's there are as many of these candies as there are varieties of squash. Again, they're often made with other vegetables like the sweet potato. One of my favorites is one called uh, biznaga, which is um, sort of the core of a of a type of cactus. And there's all sorts of wonderful lore tied up into it that I won't get into right now. But I mean, it is a very beautiful sort of crystalline white candy. On the outside is um, crystallized sugar shell that is overly sweet, of course. And then the inside is sort of a sweet cooked squash or starchy flavor, very warming. But that contrast of texture is really a lot of fun and is typical of that style of candy. Okay, so you, you said the words sweet, <laughs> brittle shell, which brings us to sugar skulls. Yes. Have you ever made them? I've made sugar, sh- uh, sugar skulls uh, in my past life as a pastry chef, and, uh, and it's great fun and, and, and really difficult to do well. Which is thankfully, you know, you can you can buy them at any Mexican store during the holidays. Um, but what is the process like? Is it a dough? It's um, a sugar dough. Uh, think of it as like uh, hard candy, sort of bound together with uh, with egg whites. Of course, uh, nowadays everyone will recommend uh, dried egg whites, but uh, it really, I think, in order to get that sort of um, morbid aroma off of the uh, <laughs> off of the candy skull. Um, you really need to use uh, uh, fresh egg whites. What do you mean by morbid aroma? Oh, that sort of, you know, sulfurous, decaying uh, <laughs> smell coming off of the skull, um, which is, uh, you know, what I remember uh, when I think back on uh, on sugar skulls. And are they made in a mold? Yeah, they're made in a mold, although um, if you can hand form it, that really shows off your skill as a, uh, as a, as a Mexican uh, uh, pastry chef. We've been talking mostly about sweet things. Is there a savory component to the Day of the Dead season? Well, um, the foods most important to the, the celebration of the Day of the Dead are really determined by the foods of your past loved ones. So that is the time to recall their memories uh, with their dishes, their favorite foods. If the the space in the corner of the home with the decorations and the marigolds and the photos is the physical altar. The sort of um, spiritual altar is the, those recipes that come down from past generations that are, that are part of your family now and that, um, that, that carry that special meaning. 
So in our family, it's my grandmother's mole. You know, we serve it at the restaurant, of course. Um, the sweet potato candies I mentioned earlier that we have on the menu, that's from my father's family, and that's really important to us as well. And um, cooking the foods of your family is what's most important during this time of year. That was Carlos Salgado talking with me in 2014 about the food traditions of Dia de los Muertos. Now we turn to a fruit that so many of us take for granted, one that's more endangered every day. Bananas are weird. They're weird to breed. Whether you're breeding them in a lab or in the field, bananas mutate quickly. And, you know, there has been experimentation with genetically modified bananas for more than a decade now. Nearly 10 years ago now, I had a conversation with journalist Dan Capel. He's the author of a book called Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World. One of our topics was the common banana. It's called the Cavendish. And lately there are reports that its very existence is being threatened by a deadly fungus. I wanted to check in with Dan again about the latest efforts to save the banana. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you doing? Good. I'm so glad we're checking back in with each other 10 years later. Me too. (laughs) So we were talking about the fungus then, and we're still talking about this fungus. What is it? What is the fungus that is stalking the Cavendish banana? Well, the common name for it is Panama disease. Um, The scientific name is Fusarium wilt tropical race 4. And when we first talked, we were speculating about where the fungus would go. It was in pretty limited areas, mostly in Asia. And we were wondering when it would come to Latin America, if it would come to Latin America. And uh, since then, the fungus has spread to multiple continents. And just earlier this year, it appeared for the first time in Colombia, where it directly affects, for the first time, our banana supply in the United States. So give us an idea of how important South America is to supplying America with the breakfast fruit. Well, let's talk about South and Central America, which are, you know, connected. Every single banana we get, um, with maybe insignificant percentage coming from Mexico, and that's very rare, So basically, if you buy a banana anywhere in the continental United States, it came from South or Central America, period. The world of bananas is huge. I mean, your book, for the most part, was on, like, the enormous biodiversity inherent in this genus. Why did we concentrate on this one variety and kind of put all our eggs in one basket, so to speak? I think the best metaphor for that is to start with the understanding that a banana farm is not really a banana farm. It is a banana factory, or it's like a McDonald's. You're not going to see a lot of diversity coming out of a fast food restaurant. You're not going to see a lot of variety. The banana that we eat, the Cavendish, is an industrial product. And the supply chain is custom designed for just one kind of banana. Bananas ripen differently, different varieties. They taste different. They are shaped differently. They're fragile or they're not fragile. And so the entire banana supply chain, it's almost like a pipe coming from South America to the United States that only fits this one particular kind of banana, the Cavendish. And that's because the banana is so cheap. The margins are so thin that in order to make money, It's like the fast food business model. You just have to focus on cheap and actually not very good, just like the fast food business model. It's so fascinating. So because of this, because of the unbelievable infrastructure that's been created around the banana, this variety of banana, to grow it and ship it up to us, 
it's better for the producers of the banana to now go heavily into technology to try and save it rather than to bring in or explore substituting other bananas that aren't affected by this fungus. That's what the banana producers probably would like us all to think. You know, this is the second time the commercial banana, the single monoculture banana, has been affected by this fungus. Uh, An earlier variety called the Gros-Michel was wiped out by a different variety of the fungus through the 1950s. The Cavendish replaced it, and now it's deeply, deeply threatened as well. This is a monoculture, and I think the time has come to stop looking at bananas as just one kind of fruit when there are thousands. I think the monoculture is environmentally devastating. It has a huge human cost in terms of pesticide use and the low margins that lead to labor exploitation. And it's also having a material cost in that it actually isn't working. I mean, twice now, the commercial banana has been threatened with extinction. Why are we going down the monoculture road again? And yet we are humans and we are intensely curious and we love to tinker. So I now understand that CRISPR technology is being used to insert a gene that would do what? So what we're trying to do, or what, what the scientists who are studying this, and I, and I, I support their work, um, is to find a way to create resistance either 100% resistance where the disease doesn't affect the banana or increased immunity where the banana may survive in the field a few weeks, few months longer so it can actually be picked. But, you know, it's problematic in a bunch of ways. One is that, you know, here in the United States, we're okay with GM because we probably don't know what food is and what food isn't. There are no labeling requirements. I personally don't think it's a problem, but there are people who do in Europe. Um, I just was speaking to one of the banana scientists who's researching this yesterday and he said, look, we're, you know, this is going to be really hard because legally we can't sell this in half the world. So I think it's possible that this will be a successful. But the other half of this is that bananas are weird. They're weird to breed. Whether you're breeding them in a lab or in the field, bananas mutate quickly. And, you know, there has been experimentation with genetically modified bananas for more than a decade now. And when they get tested in the field, they don't seem to work as well. That's been pretty consistent. And bananas take a long time to breed. So even if you use CRISPR, which will shorten the process that will get us to field testing, once you're out in the field, you're using conventional growing methods, the disease can spread conventionally, and who knows what's going to happen. So I think it's wrong to put all our bananas in one basket. I think GM bananas, CRISPR bananas will be successful ultimately in replacing the commodity Cavendish. But unless we use all the bananas at our disposal, the diversity, then I don't think it's going to be a long-term success. Maybe I won't live to see the failure of banana number three, but I think it will fail. So if you could pick a banana or a few bananas that you think can withstand the shipping requirements and the fickle tastes of the mass American and European markets— What would you nominate? When we last talked, I lived in Southern California. We've since moved to Maine, and I took my kids apple picking the other day. And I was amazed. We had about, in one apple orchard, probably 15 varieties to choose from. Anybody who likes fruit or has looked at the fruit market in the United States knows that we've gone from a couple of basic commodity varieties with many different kinds of fruit to an incredible array of different choices, ranging from the commodity to very expensive ones. And that's a good thing. There are over a thousand different breeds of banana. 
Now, all of them would present shipping challenges, but I would like to point out that when the Cavendish was adopted over the Gros Michel, many people, including the executives at Chiquita, said, we cannot ship the Cavendish. It's too difficult. It's too fragile. It ripens too quickly. That technological hurdle was overcome after some research. So I don't think there's any banana that's unshippable. It's just a matter of engineering. Now, which banana would I ship if I could? I can tell you for sure what it would be. It's a banana I tasted in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's called Ibota Ibota. The word Ibota means fertile in Swahili. So Ibota Ibota means really fertile. This banana has hundreds of fruit on a single tree. And the taste, I'm going to sound like a wine critic now. Um, <laughs> the taste is complex. It's sour. Then it's sweet. It's a luscious honey sweetness. And the aroma from it is, is just magnificent. It tastes so good. And the texture is like super premium ice cream. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. And it's such a good banana. It's going to be hard to ship because it bruises easily. But that is the banana I would love to see people taste. And I would love to taste again myself. What does it look like? It's shorter than our typical banana, fatter as well. Uh, it probably weighs about the same per fruit, but a little stubbier. But it's yellow. Uh, it gets It ripens in a predictable way. Like I said, the bunches are quite large, sometimes up to 200 bananas at a time. Wow. Yeah. And our, our Cavendish can be 100 to 150. Um, I mean, the banana trees are just a riot of, <laughs> of fertility. It's, it, it's great. So having lived in Southern California, you know that many of us have banana trees in our front yards, banana trees that actually fruit and bear stalks of bananas. What are the chances of being able to get one's hands on a shoot of that African banana? I can't say for sure that that's available, but there is a nursery, I think it's in San Diego, that specializes in different kinds of bananas. Uh, and they have a, an associated bulletin board at bananas.org, which is kind of a hobbyist website for banana geeks, I want to say, which I am, and I am one of them. That's not meant as pejorative. Uh, so, and uh, you can find pretty much any banana you want. When I lived in Mount Washington, I used to keep a um, record of all the bananas I'd pass on my walks or runs. And, uh, what most people forget to do is to harvest them. Bananas don't really start to ripen until you take them off the tree. So if you're listening to this in Southern California, you've got an interesting banana or an unknown banana in your yard. When it gets looking pretty yellow or pretty green, take it off the tree and let it ripen and then taste it. You might be surprised. It's always so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for checking in with us. My pleasure. I've been talking with Dan Capel about the race to save the Cavendish banana. He's the author of a book called Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World. For lifelong Angelinos, eating an original Tommy's chili burger under the glow of a fluorescent street lamp at midnight is practically a rite of passage, maybe even more so than in and out But drive around L.A. and you'll see more imitators than the original article. How did they come to be? I'm talking with L.A. Times reporter Daniel Miller when we return. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. When I take a bite of that, I, I feel like I'm, you know, 10 years old and my dad's taking me there after a Dodger game. And I think I'm not alone. I think many Angelinos feel that way. If you grew up in Los Angeles, chances are you've eaten a Tommy's burger. It's as much a feature of the L.A. culinary scene as any high-end restaurant. But there's a difference. It's much more imitated. 
Drive around our city for even a day and you see them, the imitators, the Tomies, the numbered Tommies, the Tom Juniors. One uh, owner, in fact, did say he named his hamburger stand something close to Tommies because he was copying it. Daniel Miller's a staff writer for the LA Times. He took on the challenge of investigating the phenomenon. To frame the experience of the original, could you read the following paragraph for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. It is a place where a polyglot city comes together. Cops, construction workers with sunburnt noses, possibly truant teens, besuited drivers of beamers, lots of abuelas and homonies, and a real estate agent from a bus bench ad were all at the original Tommy's stand at Beverly and Rampart Boulevards for lunch on a recent weekday. They all waited in line for a chili burger, made with mustard, chopped onions, pickles, cheese, beefsteak tomato, and a plain bun, and possibly some regret. So how long has Tommy's been around? So Tommy's was founded in 1946 by Tom Kulaks, and it was a hit right off the bat. This was a, a greasy spoon, a place to get a chili cheeseburger at a prominent intersection, the corner of Beverly and Rampart Boulevards. Even early on, it was imitated. I think generations have come to love this spot for what it represents. You know, these days it's a bit of a throwback, but I think that it's always rested on this notion of quality. You know, for me, at least when I think of Tommy's, I don't actually think of the chili. I think of the thick slice of beefsteak tomato. Me too. And I think that that's how Tommy's has tried to differentiate itself over many decades now, that you're going to get a fresh burger with quality ingredients. Um, it's obviously stood the test of time. Even the chili is something that is perfectly suited. It's nearly a ragu. The way it clings is very particular. That's right. And I have to say, full disclosure, in preparation for our talk today, I went back to Tommy's yesterday and got myself a double chili cheeseburger. And so I can say with authority, you're right, it is a bit like a ragu. It, it coats everything, including your face and hands. How many original Tommies exist now and how many imitators are there? So there are 33 original Tommies, uh, mostly in Southern California with three in Nevada. It's been uh, steady growth for the company, which is still family owned. They're soon to open their 34th. But in researching the slew of knockoffs, I was stunned to find 67 lookalikes. So there are more than double the number of lookalikes than real ones. I shared that information with Bob Auerbach, who is the son of the founder, and he was astounded by the number. <laughs> yeah, it's so bizarre. Did you manage to get any of the imitators to talk to you? I did, and I always thought that that was key to this story, that I could understand the perspective of those who have opened burger stands that seem awfully similar to Tommy's, not just in name, but in product. I wound up speaking to a handful of people who owned uh, burger stands like Tommy's, and they gave me a variety of uh, answers when I asked them, you know, uh, why they named it that and why they served what they served. Some said their name was Thomas, and that's why they named their burger stand something like uh, Thomas Hamburgers or Tomboys. Others said that they really love chili cheeseburgers, but one uh, owner, in fact, did say he named his hamburger stand something close to Tommy's because he was copying it. And the copying comes about because this family-owned business has never has decided to never franchise. That's right. That's the theory of Bob Auerbach, whose family owns the business. He's a regional supervisor for Tommy's. Uh, his theory is that rivals are jealous because the company will not offer franchises. So he thinks it's born a little bit out of envy and frustration. It's also occurred because Tommy's has not been so aggressive when it comes to uh, its legal strategy. What is the reasoning behind that, that they rarely sue? 
So Tommy's does have a California trademark and another one in Nevada. Theoretically, it could bring more lawsuits against these supposed imitators. But the the company essentially said that it's not worth their time and energy, that it would require a lot of resources to go after every single parent imitator, and that it would be a distraction from their core business. I actually spoke to a handful of attorneys specializing in intellectual property who said that uh, they felt this was a, a wise decision by the company to not waste resources on those on those efforts. It seems like they go after businesses that use the motto in its entirety, the name in its entirety, and maybe include the shack, which is iconic. Yeah, that's fair to say. I mean, to be clear, Tommy's has filed lawsuits against competitors for things like uh trademark infringement. Bob Auerbach did say if you copy their logo or if you copy their name, you will hear from them. And the name is more than just Tommy's. Original Tommy's World Famous Hamburgers. There you go. That's quite a mouthful. They actually sued the son of the owner once who was selling the chili separately. That's right. Tommy Kulaks Jr. uh, opened a Marina Del Rey uh, business, internet-based, and it sold chili. And He was sued by Tommy's for uh, a number of things. Eventually, the case was settled when that business agreed to uh, stop using the name, uh, among other things. Did Bob Auerbach, has he ever eaten at any of the imitators? So Bob Auerbach, it seems to me, delights in checking out the imitators. Uh, He's traveled as far as Utah to check out a place with a similar name and a similar product. And he was pretty proud to say that none compare to his burgers. He told me that he thinks in some cases they just douse their burger in some Hormel chili and serve it that way. Tommy's is very proud of what it offers, Uh, you know, that it's a local business, family owned, and they have this quality hamburger. One of my favorite stories is the one where Tommy's hired a secret shopper. Sure. So in a business like Tommy's, it's not uncommon to use a secret shopper company that will send people out to do quality checks, essentially, to see how customer service is, to see how the food is. So uh, Tommy's hired one company to do just that. And uh, uh, the shopper returned a scathing report in this one instance. The pricing was irregular. The chili was terrible. It was all around a poor experience. And when the secret shopper was relaying the details of it, it became clear to Tommy's that, in fact, the secret shopper had not gone to a real Tommy's, that they had gone to a knockoff Tommy's. Um, Of course, they had a laugh about that, but I think, you know, it's hilarious. But it also speaks to just how widely these knockoffs have proliferated, right? They're, They're everywhere. To me, it's one of my favorite things in the general landscape of Los Angeles, because you'll be driving and it just gives you a chuckle. See, Tommy's number five, (laughs) you know, because it makes you wonder. You have all of this, these questions as you're driving. But in reality, it must be kind of frustrating for the owners of the original when a customer complains and it turns out that it's an imitator that they're complaining about. That's right. That's also occurred. Bob Auerbach told me that uh, customers have complained about uh, a Tommy's restaurant only to be told they were complaining about a knockoff Tommy's. You know, I think Tommy's tries to take the high road. They promote the quality of their burgers and say that they're not, you know, interested in pursuing a legal case against every single imitator. But at the same time, you know, this is a family-owned business built from scratch by Tom Kulak's It's got to be frustrating to know that there are people out there who are trying to trade on that good name. Yeah, and all that goodwill. You and Lucas Kwan-Peterson of the LA Times food section did a video, a tasting of the imitators. How many did you taste? 
So in all, we tasted 10 chili cheeseburgers between the two of us. And we also tasted a Tommy's burger, of course, because we needed to have, you know, a, a sense of what these guys were going up against. You rated them on a scale of 1 to 10. We did. 1 being horrifying, 10 being the original. Yeah, I think I actually used the word horrifying to describe one of the burgers. <laughs> so how did they hold up? Well, none were as good as the Tommy's burger. But what was really fascinating to me was that some clearly were trying to imitate the Tommy's burger. They even came in the same style of paper wrapping. They even omitted ingredients that you find in all sorts of burgers, like lettuce, just as the Tommy's burger does. But others were had made serious detours from that. You had poppy seed buns, you had, you know, gloppy mayonnaise, you had the wrong kind of onions. By the end of it, we were a mess. And to Lucas's delight, there was one that had a big wedge of lettuce. <laughs> That's right. One had a big wedge of lettuce. Uh, a burger that I had to wrestle with had a bit of brown lettuce. Um, oh, that one looked so awful. I was really actually surprised that you took a bite out of that burger. So I can't remember which it was, in all honesty, but I will tell you that they were kind of arrayed in front of us on this table, and I had been eyeing that one throughout the process. And as we were filming this, Lucas and I were basically just grabbing burgers off the table, and I was angling to avoid that one. And I don't know if he had noticed it, but it just wound up that, that that's all that was left, and it was in front of me. And, you know, this project was my idea, it was my vision, so I had to suffer the consequences. What I found kind of interesting was there were a couple of them that rated a seven. So, you know, if you were driving by one of these imitators and you th started thinking about Tommy's and you thought, oh, well, let me let me give that a try, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Sure. And the one that stands out to me was the uh, chili cheeseburger from Thomas Hamburgers uh, in Marina del Rey. Uh, this was very similar to the original Tommy's Burger. And it was pretty good. And if you lived over there and you were in a pinch, I could see that doing, you know, b being just fine. So when you go to Tommy's, what's your order? Oh, I get a double chili cheeseburger, fries and a Coke, although they, they serve Pepsi there. I've heard, though, that the menu's pretty limited, but I've heard that the other items on the menu are, are, are actually quite good. I've heard uh, people who are, who are vouching for the tamales. I've heard from people who are vouching for the uh, chili dogs. So I think there are loyalists for each part of that menu. Yeah, when, when I went with Roy Choi and Alvin Kylan uh, for the burger show, we had a tamale. It was delicious, huh. I have to say. I would get it again. All right. I, I've got to try it. You know, like I said, I truly was there yesterday and I was going to try something else, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Of course not. I mean, for me, the only downside to the Tommy's experience now for me is when I was a child, so I'm dating myself now, there was a huge Coca-Cola reach-in ice machine. You know, it had ice in it at, and water as the ice melted with all these different kind of sodas in it. And you would go over there and you'd pull a soda out and open it up. And I always accompanied my Tommy's burger with a Yoohoo, which is a chocolate soda. And for me, that was part of the, the flavor experience. And I really wish I could replicate that. <laughs> Yeah, that's gone, I'm afraid. But, you know, a lot of one of the talking about the flavor experience. So they've got chili peppers that they'll give you oh, and they'll give it, you as many as you want. They're very important. And, you know, some people have a very regimented way of eating these burgers. You take a bite of the burger, a bite of the chili pepper. What I do is I nip off the end of the chili pepper and then I spread all the juice from the inside into the burger. Oh, that's that's an advanced move. I 
wow, I have to rethink my strategy now. <laughs> yeah. And then I just continue to munch on them. But that adds like this whole like piquant layer to the experience. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think that one of the things that I love about Tommy's is is really the history and its place in, in Los Angeles. I mean, for me, there are a handful of places like Tommy's in LA that are so important beyond the food they serve. Tito's Tacos comes to mind something like Philippe's downtown. And everybody has their own order, their own way of going about things at those restaurants. And it's just part of the culture. And I think that's, you know, what makes it so fun. I'm so curious, after you and Lucas ate all those burgers, how did you cleanse your palate afterwards? I think I went for a run, (laughs) eventually. (laughs) And I don't think I ate dinner that night. I think the next meal I had was a salad, whenever it was. Yeah, I think that would be the move. Thank you so much, Daniel. Oh, this was fun. Thanks for having me. That was Daniel Miller, staff writer for the LA Times. He wrote a fantastic article on the many imitators of Tommy's Burgers. We will have a link for you at kcrw.com slash goodfood. After the break, the Market Report returns after its brief hiatus. Stick around. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Finally, the market report. Jillian Ferguson is here to tell us what's fresh. This is Jillian Ferguson with the market report. We are back in Santa Monica this week, and I'm talking with Chef Stefano De Lorenzo, who is a familiar face here in Santa Monica. Stefano, you've been shopping this market for over 15 years. Formerly, you had the restaurant La Botte, also in Santa Monica, and now you have a new place called Cola Pasta, which is over on Fifth Street. And Cola Pasta is a tiny restaurant. You literally, you don't have a produce buyer. You get all of your produce here at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market every week. One of the dishes that is most popular because of a recent LA Times review is your beet ravioli. What is the name of this dish? This is called, uh, well, hello, everybody. Um, Thank you for having me here. The dish is called Casunzier a Lampezzana. I come from a small, tiny city up on the Dolomites in Italy called Cortina d'Ampezzo, and that's where the name comes from, like Casunzier a Lampezzana. And describe what exactly it is. It's these half-moon-shaped, beet-filled ravioli. Is it correct to call them ravioli? It is correct, yeah, absolutely. Ravioli can be any shape, right? So Cortina is a tiny town up on the Dolomites, about 4,000 feet high, right? So we don't grow very much in there, right? So beets and potatoes are basically everything that we can grow. Right? So the beer ravioli is uh, the, the traditional dish. Uh, it's got a little hint of poppy seeds. I put a little bit of poppy seeds and Parmesan cheese. It's an interesting story about the poppy seeds. They come from uh, the Marco Polo times when they used to park their boats in Venice and walk up north and pass by places like Cortina. And so they would trade the spices for food. So that's where the poppy seeds come from. So it's an interesting story to tell basically, yeah. right? Yeah, I love that. And I, I wanted to talk about this dish specifically because I feel like beets do not get a lot of love. And this is a dish that makes beets so beautiful and so exciting and showcases like what you can really do with them in a creative way. Yeah, I know. I personally love beets. I, you know, when my mom would make me eat beets, I would always say no, right? And now I regret those times. But, you know, it's a really incredible dish. It's very unique. You know, there is nothing like it, you know. And then uh, I get a bit at the market here in the morning, go back, uh, wash them, peel them, uh, pass into the processor, and then leave them on a stove for like five or six hours sometimes, right, to take the water, the moist out, and to extract it, all the flavor of the beets. When you put them on the stove, are you adding anything to them to sort of dry them out, or is it just the pureed beets that you're reducing down? 
I like kind of the secret of the Italian kitchen is start with an incredible product and just keep it like that and take advantage of nature, right? They take the credits from nature, basically, right? So no, I don't add anything. Salt and pepper, a little Parmesan cheese is all what I put in the filling, that's it. I know the recipe calls from uh, breadcrumbs uh, or ricotta cheese or some other ingredients. I go really simple. All my food, you probably know me, all my food is really, really simple. All right. And then are you rolling out the pasta fresh? Yes, and the egg for the pasta and the flour, you know, it all comes here from the farmer's market. That's fantastic. Okay, so beets inside the pasta and then uh, sautéed in a little bit of brown butter? Yeah, the brown butter, yeah, just the brown butter is the sauce. Uh, I'll put Parmesan cheese, a lot of, par- lot of Parmesan cheese, I love that, right? And then the poppy seeds, and then I cover that up with a bubbly brown butter. And I usually do that table side because people love it. People love the, the action and the bubbly, and then also the smell is incredible. Wow. And, uh, there is nothing that goes better with some, you know, red beets than brown butter. Okay, well, sounds delicious, Stefano. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so very welcome. Please come and try, you know, it's a, it's a really great experience. That was Stefano De Lorenzo. You can find him at Cola Pasta, his restaurant on 5th between Wilshire and Arizona, just steps from the farmer's market. He's open for lunch and dinner six days a week, every day but Sunday. Gloria Tamai is one of the farmers here at the Santa Monica market that grows beets. And Gloria, you have not one, not two, but three varieties. You've got golden beets, red beets, and candy stripe beets, right? That's right. Yeah. And we just did a taste test here, raw, and we have discovered that the golden beets are, in fact, the sweetest right yeah. now. They are the sweeter right now, but usually, sometimes they change the flavor. Sometimes the candy strike the sweeter or the red ones. Or the red but right ones. now, the yellow ones, and it's probably because it's hot right now, mm-hmm. and we had to water it more. So it sort of changed the sugar. Okay, so, and if you give them more water, it sort of starts to dilute the flavor yeah, a little bit? Yeah, that's right, a little bit. Okay. Like everything, you know, like when you water more the vegetables, but like in the cold weather, mm-hmm. you know, you don't water it so much, and with the cold, so it's like they grow slowly. Right. So they keep more like that sugar. Right, concentrate uh-huh. all that sugar. Yeah. Exactly. So the best growing conditions for beets are as it gets a little bit colder, is that That's right? That's right. Yeah. We grow it all year round, but, you know, in winter, I think it's sweeter than the summer. Yeah. How many rows do you devote to beets? Because you go to a lot of farmer's markets, and I always see beets on your table. Yeah. We usually plant like at least six rows, six or eight rows a year, and then, like, four or five yellow and less candy. Less candy? Yeah, because we sell less candy. Oh, I was going to ask. I thought that maybe the candy stripe might be sort of more trendy because what they look like a spiral of pink and white when you cut into them. They're quite beautiful. Yeah, but when you cook it, they turn white. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that people say, oh, what happened here? But some people wanted that one because they don't want to dirty their hands with the red ones. You see? Yeah. That makes sense. And yeah. um, as demonstrated here at your booth today, you can eat these raw, and they're actually quite delicious. Oh, yeah. It's easy. I, you know, like, you sometimes you eat in the restaurant real thick, you know, yeah. they cut it. They cut and it you like eat it. the uh-huh. mandolin, very, yeah. very thin. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can eat it like that. Yeah. They, I remember I used to eat it a lot rough in my country. <laughs> oh, really? Tell, uh-huh. How did you eat it there? Just cut it like that and uh-huh. eat it raw. You know, no cook. So you grew up in Colombia. You grew beets when, when yes, you were young? Yes, uh-huh, because I come from like a farm from over there, so we grow the beets over there. Oh, my God. My mother used to put it with milk, like juice and milk. Uh-huh. 
Or we eat it like that. And add mm-hmm. milk? Yeah. Oh. Okay, that was one way. And we make salads. Like what kind of salads? It's like we cook the beets, we chop it in, and then we put cilantro, onions, olive oil, and lemon, and pepper. Oh my goodness, that's so good. <laughs> that's why I even make it here in my house. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gloria. I've learned so much about beets today. Oh, okay, you're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> That was Gloria Tamai of Tamai Family Farms from Oxnard and Camarillo. And you can find Gloria and all of her gorgeous beets at many West Side markets, including Saturday Santa Monica, Wednesday Santa Monica, Sunday Mar Vista, Friday Venice, and Tuesday Culver City. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. That's it for our show this week. In case you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And as always, please leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks to the Good Food team, Nick Leal, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, Chuck Previtary, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, and Kenny Ng. I'm Evan Kleiman. I'll be back next week with more Good Food.